been exposed and has been on, in quarantine, and today was his last day of quarantine. He called me Monday and asked me if I would be able to teach the class for him tonight. And I think he'll be able to join us in most of the other activities from this time forward. We're going to be looking tonight at Luke chapter 7. Very interesting chapter. I don't know whether you've particularly noted the, the, the interest of this chapter or not. It's a chapter that is dedicated to four different projects that take place. A little different than chapter 6, a little different than chapter 8. But four things that are very important as far as Jesus and his life is concerned. We're not talking about any of his transportations and, and visits very far away and all the trips that he made here and there. We're not talking about those. Although he did make some from the first uh, thing that we find uh, in the early part of this, he goes to the uh, city of Nain from Capernaum. Capernaum uh, to Nain is probably somewhere between 15 and 20 miles. Now, how long they were in going there and who all went there, we're not told. We are told that those who were with him prior to that were a number of people who were following him at that particular time. It wasn't just a small group. It was a number of groups. And as we think of this as it's found between those two sections of Scripture, that's uh, the prime power and concern of Jesus in Matthew chapter, and John, Luke chapter 6, and also in chapter 8, the people, as Jesus provided healing for the people of his day. Now, another great example of the forgiveness of Jesus we're going to really focus on that tonight because I think that's important for us. I think it's important for us to know what Luke has been talking about. Uh, there's some, the, these four sections are coming at this in different ways, but all of them talking about really the great power of Jesus' forgiveness. You remember, in this particular first episode that we're going to look at is Luke chapter 11, uh, 7 verse 11 through about verse 17 for the first section. And as we think about that, it was Jesus who stopped a burial procession and said to the young man, young man, I say to you, arise. Now picture for a moment for me. Picture, if you will, this poor woman, a widow woman. This was not her first loss in life. Obviously, she had lost her husband, the father of the young man. And now her son is dead. Now, truly, for those who are unprepared for it, that is a terrible, terrible thing. And even it is for those who are prepared for it because, you know, we're deprived of the companionship, we're deprived of the ones that are dear to us. It 
what we've lost. And that's, that's hard to live with. It's hard. That, that, that's difficult. Picture, if you will, and see if you can put in your mind this poor widow woman and what she's going through at this particular moment. She's coming out of the city in the funeral procession. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. She's already made this journey once with her husband, whenever that might have been. We're not told. She was a widow. This now is her only son. Grief piled upon grief. I don't know about you, but my heart aches for someone like that. You know, to recognize that life hasn't been kind to her. But there's another procession that's entering this same little village, Nain. Jesus has a multitude that were following him from Capernaum. Now, I don't know how big it was, but it, it's a multitude. A great number of those who were disciples, a great number of those who were following him and wanting to hear more of the gospel and see more of what Jesus could do. The scripture tells us that many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. Now picture something else. Coming out of the city of Nain. Nain is a little village. Not a city, just a village very small and I can imagine and I think you probably can too in that kind of situation when there's a funeral procession coming out that most of the village is in that procession most of the village is going with her as that, that funeral procession coming out of the city is met by the large crowd that Jesus brought you know Let's pause and read chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Now it happened the day after that that he went into the city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Now whether that large crowd means a great number of people or just a large percentage of that particular village or not, we don't know. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Think about that for a moment. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented 
him to his mother, and then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. You know, I really think verses 13 to 15 is the real focus of attention. He had compassion. He said, don't weep. And then he said to the son, arise. And he sat up and began to speak himself. I want you to see some things. If I can get out my my clicker. I want you to see some things that we ought to really understand at this particular point. We ought to know the fact that according to Luke chapter There we go. There is two things that popped up there, but one I want you to see the compassion of Jesus. The condition that brought this about, that makes known that compassion, and we're going to be looking at that compassion that he had. But there's some, some things that set it up for us. One is the condition of that time, the condition of that young man. You see, he's dead. No question about it. There were three people in the New Testament that Jesus raised from the dead. You remember them, Jairus' daughter. She had just died when Jesus arrived. In Luke chapter 8, verses 49 following. And then there was a young man who had been dead for a longer period of time. He's been carried, he was being carried out of the city of Nain. And of course, there's Lazarus who had been dead four days. Did you notice that each of those instances is of a longer period of time? That the person is dead for a longer period of time? It's interesting to mention those who claim to have the powers of the Holy Spirit today, that they have the power of the Holy Spirit of the first century they claim, they don't attempt to do as Jesus did. Oh, they, 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 they tell you that they'll take the passage that says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever and apply it to healing, but not to the raising of the dead. Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Who's he talking to? Who is Paul in Ephesians 2 talking to when he uses the word you? Those who read the written words in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. In Colossians 2 and verse 13, he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses. You see, while we're in sin, we're dead spiritually. All those who've never allowed the blood of Jesus to wash away their sins are dead spiritually. 
Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. He said, And you made a, uh, he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But remember the first phrase. And you, he made alive. That's, it's interesting for me to think. These are, are some powerful words. And something that I think we ought to be thinking about. The next verse begins with two powerful words. But God. Continues, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Why does God extend mercy to us? Because He loves us. Remembering something out of all you hear tonight, without Christ we're dead. It wasn't because we're so good. It wasn't because we had such great faith. It wasn't because we're so talented. It was because of the great mercy and love of God. Then, too, I want you to notice that compassion that Jesus had. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is, is Luke chapter 7 and verse 13. And when he saw her, he had compassion on her. Jesus is concerned about us, too. There are probably times in our lives when Jesus has had compassion on us. You can't think for a moment in which you were taken away totally from the compassion of Jesus. You have to know that Jesus is not unmindful of our grief. You see, we understand that. We must know that the Lord shares with us our difficulties. There were three people in the New Testament Jesus raised from the dead, as we've already talked about. But we know that Jesus was not unmindful of the grief of those who were suffering because of their loved ones being dead. It was compassion that caused Jesus to act. The one thing to feel, it's one thing to feel compassion. It's entirely another thing to act in a compassionate way. He came and touched the coffin. Let me pause for a moment. See if we can get some things in our mind concerning touching that coffin. First of all, the word coffin probably does not describe this funeral procession. Most likely the young man was merely laid out on a board or some, some thing that they could carry. And we're carrying him, transporting him, not in a box like we think of a coffin. We can understand that when we understand that Jesus went to him and spoke to him, touched him. Wouldn't do that if he's in a coffin, most likely with people carrying him. But think of something that Jesus did. He did not touch a stretcher 
of the body, a, a person doesn't. It, read with me in Numbers chapter 19 if you want to turn there. And as I read verses 11 through 13 for you of Numbers 19. The Old Testament laws that were given concerning the Jews says, He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with water on the third day, and on the seventh day then he'll be clean. If he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because of the water of purification is not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. I wonder if it was because of the action of Jesus being so unusual that they stopped carrying the coffin, carrying the body. The procession coming out of the city paused at that particular moment and stood still. But I want you to think of something else. Not one person that we read of here not one person complained because Jesus touched the young man. Now we find the Pharisees just a little bit later on are going to be complaining about Jesus a number of ways, but not that way. Why did they not say, well, he's now unclean? Because they saw what he did. Because they saw his compassion, because they saw what had happened. It was compassion for your sinful condition that caused Jesus to come to, re to the rescue. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. Raised us up together. Made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice the comparison to Christ being raised from the tomb after three days and our being raised from our burial in water to walk in newness of life. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 identifies that when we were made alive having forgiven all of our trespasses what great compassion. Paul calls it an unspeakable gift, too wonderful to describe. Now there's an amazing conclusion to this story. I want you to think about that for just a moment as well. An amazing conclusion that gives us an idea that is a wonderful story. It's a story, first of all, that cannot be duplicated today. We can't act in that way. We can't do that. It's a story that shows beyond question that Jesus really is the Son of God. Nobody questioned that at that time. Now, there were a lot of critics with him there uh, in that way, and we're going to see them for the end of the chapter if we have time. But I want you to notice that, that they are people that are 
wonderful people, but they're not criticizing Jesus for touching him. It's a story that shows beyond question that Jesus really is the Son of God. And now, now also, what a statement he made. Can you imagine stopping a funeral procession and somebody going to the, to the corpse as it was being carried out of the city and saying, young man, arise and expect him to stand up? Jesus did. Why? Because he's the Son of God. Because he has that power. He was given, this young man was given a new life, completely new from what he'd had. He now was, had, had a, a great opportunity, an opportunity to do what Jesus wanted him to do. What had been the end of a, of a, of a beautiful privilege, life, now was the beginning again of that beautiful privilege. Can you, especially you ladies, can you picture the joy that the mother had? How great her joy must have been. It would not have been anything that she could ever have expressed her, her total gratefulness no way to do that. Can you just think of that? We're told that then, after this, fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Now, I want you to think for one more thing. I want you to think of the fact that that was the purpose of all of this. Along with that extent of the compassion to the mother, isn't it surprising that the report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region? Now, I can imagine that. I, I could know in our time how quickly that would serve make its way around all over the community and all over the world. But you know, there's a corresponding idea that pictures the idea that we have been given a new life. Remember when your sins were, are forgiven, you're made alive again and agree with Him. Jesus refers to this as the new birth, John chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. Paul refers to this as our becoming a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. And again in Romans 6 and verse 4, we rise to walk in newness of life. It's so easy for us to forget the greatness of this. We see somebody baptized. We see them come up out of the water. And we don't really pause to think about the greatness that's been exhibited in that particular individual. A new person. A new birth. A total new life being given to them. Now are they going to live sinlessly? No. Not necessarily. But they have made the wonderful change.
It's wonderful. A wonderful thought that we can start all over again. It's a wonderful thought that we can have all of our sins forgiven. All of us have sinned. Hopefully we didn't intend to. Hopefully it wasn't anything really serious, but sin nonetheless. All sin serious, isn't it? To think that all those could be wiped out. And we could start anew. The great power of God is shown in the raising of this boy from the dead. And do you, did you notice as we read that story that it was never questioned historically? Never once questioned historically. The great power of God is needed to forgive. It's needed to give us that new life, that new birth that permits us to live together with Him. And so we read of that great power of Jesus. Read with me again from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to Him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? And that very hour he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and to many who were blind he gave sight. And then Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John the things that you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I wonder, and I'll get through reading this again, the rest of it in just a moment, but I wonder, as I read that, was John, was he really questioning Jesus at this point? Was the question that he asked for Jesus something that he wanted answered or was it something for his disciples that were following him? Something for us to think about. Surely John, as he was preaching in the power of the, the gospel of that time, who knew Jesus, actually part of his family, would understand, would he not, the power of Jesus. He said that when Jesus came to him to be baptized, remember? John told him, I need to be baptized of you. You coming to me? And Jesus commanded him to do, to do that. And I want you to notice as we think about this, uh, the what was this great character? We, we're talking about the many, many things that he's done. Here's a man, John, 
who lived as a hermit. He lived in the wilderness, dressed in rough clothes. His, his only diet was locusts and wild honey. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want that for dinner tomorrow. Honey's okay. I, I haven't tried locusts. But he had, to, he had to live on what was available, what he could. You see, the, the, the barest of essentials was his. The austere life was his. And then picture, if you will, the common folk that are coming from all distances all around him to hear this man preach. They did come because of the message. Or did they come because of the message? Did they come because of the strange character that was preaching this? The man from the wilderness. Was it a, a commitment or curiosity that drew them there? And what is there about this man that caused Jesus to give him the most glowing commendation of any man? Jesus said, perhaps uh, in the latter part of this, let's read on just a little bit and we'll see what he said. When the messengers of God, of John, had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are, are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in the king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way before you. Quoted from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Why greater than him? Because God has forgiven them and washed away their sins and made them pure and clean. Now think about this as we really understand. Three things are important about John's doubt. And it's really an interesting thing to me. There is, first of all, expectation. There is the evidence that John presented at this particular time. John was, John's question was, or was that the question of his disciples? And John asking them to plead. Did they begin to question Jesus and the suggestion makes John to begin questioning as well? Did Jesus meet John's expectations when John was looking for someone greater? Perhaps a political figure, perhaps a military person, one who could free the nation from Rome? Was it simply because Jesus did not live up to John's expectations? Remember the evidence that he submitted. First of all, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
and the gospel is preached to the poor. Now, picture, if you will, that to me, it, it, it's interesting to me at least, that, 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 that along with the blind seeing and the lame walking and the lepers being cleansed and the dead being raised, Jesus puts the preaching of the gospel. How important is the preaching of the gospel that we hear today? If it's true to the word of God, then it's very, very great. Does that, does that tell you something when you think about the, 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 the last of that, the gospel is preached to the poor on equality with the blind being healed, the deaf being healed, the lame being healed, and dead being raised, and all of that on the equality with preaching the gospel. Surely we've presented the expectation, the evidence, and now there is their excuse. There are three things to note about this. I want you to notice, first of all, the pretense. There is a paradox. I, know, I understand that. We're talking about an excuse. We're talking about some who were offended because of the pretense, the insufficient evidence, they thought, of his Messiahship. The world then and now is unwilling to accept Jesus as the Son of God. Some because of the circumstance of his life born in a lowly position as we think about it. The world is we're not unwilling to accept Jesus as the Son of God. He, and is an itinerant preacher at this particular time without a place to lay his head. Not great in this world's goods. So some, because of his teaching, turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for those who turn from him. There were those in Jesus' day who turned from them, as, as he mentions there, and there are people like that today who turn away from the gospel. Maybe it's because of his requirements for the holy life. Maybe it's because Jesus has told us be holy because I am holy. It's a high requirement. How often others look at the weak brother or sister and draw a conclusion. If that's Christianity, I don't want any of it. We have to watch ourselves. We could do the same thing. Now many, because of the trials to which they would be exposed by way of Christ. It's not an easy path. Yea, and all who will live godly shall suffer persecution. And we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14 verse 22. Now I want you to notice Jesus' declaration. And I want you to notice first of all that that paradox. A paradox is a statement contrary to the known truth. Apparently a false statement to make a point. They didn't go in the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind. They could do that anywhere at any time they wanted to. They didn't need to make a trip for that. 
There is the, uh, they, they didn't go in the wilderness to see a man clothed in gorgeous apparel. John was not clothed in that way. You don't see that in the wilderness. According to what we're seeing here, they went to see a prophet. Notice the ascending importance of what Jesus suggested. Even something more than a prophet, he says. They went to see John. Notice two other things that proved John to be more than a prophet. The fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, quoted from in verse 27 from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, and the compliment of Jesus. There is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, verse 28. A prophet in this sense is one who communicates God's message to man. John had the purpose, was sent for the purpose of preparing the way of the Lord. And then there's privilege. This doesn't mean righteousness. We aren't more righteous than John. We aren't. We won't be. It doesn't mean more greatly favored in God's eyes than John speaks of privilege. John could not enter the kingdom of God. Remember, remember that, that phrase. John could not enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God hadn't been established yet. It wouldn't be established to the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus. John died long before that. He could not enter the kingdom of God. It was on the first Pentecost that it, that it was done. You have a far greater privilege than John did because you can enter the kingdom. And you can be part of that kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our citizenship is there. We have the wonderful privilege of being part of, uh, of a kingdom of which Jesus is king. He is the creator. He is the, the mediator on our part. What, a, what an opportunity we have to know that particular idea. I want you to skip on down now to verses 29 and 30. And when all the people heard him, talking about Jesus, when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They're saying, they're saying in essence by their action that they believed John to be preaching what God wanted. And because of the, uh, uh, the, their obedience, they were justified because of obedience to his preaching. But, the next verse. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God for themselves, not having been baptized by it. I can't help but think that two, ba two basic fundamental groups of people are mentioned in this passage. 
You know, it's easy to think about that. Easy for us to know. They had a, they had a, t- a decision, a, a position that they'd made a, a great decision. Even the tax collectors were justified by God. Now you think of the Pharisees and think of the tax collectors, and they were not uh, agreeable people. They did, they they did not agree with the tax collectors, and that's a statement given to show the extent to which God's goodness will go. If God's going to save the tax collectors in the minds of the first century people, that would be a tremendous, tremendous step for them. The word justified could be translated declared the righteousness of God. By their obedience to the message of that day, by their being baptized by John, they were declared to be the righteousness of God. Some translations make this statement to mean when they heard what Jesus had to say, they were baptized. Others, a statement that points backward to their baptism as a result of John's baptism. And I think that's true. And as a result of John's preaching that led them to his baptism. The point being made is by their accepting John's preaching and being baptized, they justified God or acknowledged God's righteousness. How do we do that? There were also those who were baptized by John, but there were also those who refused baptism. Please notice that a refusal of baptism is not a simple matter. It's a rejection of the counsel of God. It's an affront to God himself. Anytime we reject obeying God. Other translations read in this manner when they say, saying they frustrated God's purpose for them, for they refused John's baptism. That's God's purpose for them. That's why John was given, why John came. You see, or by refusal of John's baptism, they had rejected God's purpose for themselves. Now that gives us food for thought, doesn't it? I recognize this was said But if John's baptism was important, how much more important would Jesus' baptism be? God's counsel or God's purpose is important. Are you concerned about God's purpose for you? Then baptism plays a part in that concern. And as we think about it, what are you showing as a, as a result of the, your regard of God's law? How does your life be able to prevent, preside for them or present for them your willingness to show God's action for His I want Then I want you to see the people's dissatisfaction. Two things I want you to see here that I think are particularly important. 
how, fa how, how fickle are we? And if you and I never obey God. You see, when I, when I read the statement first, how fickle are we? I, that we includes all of us. Never satisfied, never content. Why? Think of the Israelites in the wilderness. The children of Israel, as we look back on it, it's easy for us to see that as they came out of the Egypt into the wilderness, God provided for them food, clothing, water. It was there. When they, when they ran out of water, they found some more. God provided it for them. God provided food for them. I, you know, I, we'd probably be the same way if we had to eat the same food for 40 years. Manna. God provided some other food for them too, quail. So much so that they got sick eating it. It's, it's so, so much. They complained about Moses' leadership, God's care and providence. We think, how awful. Surely they'd be content and satisfied with God's care. But are we not similar to them? Are not our ways somewhat like theirs? And Jesus said, we are like children in the marketplace. Verse 32. Sometimes they danced and sang, but that wasn't what they wanted. They were there for a different purpose. And then the last few minutes, I want to read the last few verses here, beginning in verse 36. An interesting thing takes place. And one, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wipe them, with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, they spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Teacher, say it. Jesus said, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Now tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he gave, forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. 
Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since you came, since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven you. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a privilege. Concludes the series of, uh, of what's taking place there. The fact that Jesus forgave her. You see, that's very important. The Pharisees couldn't understand that. They, they didn't understand it. Now, I want you to picture that, that this woman. We, don't, we would not understand how this happened today. The Pharisees probably had a large house, and they had a, a special room in that house that was open to the outside where they had their dinners when they had dinners. And people walking by and could, there could come out and see what is going on and everything about it. And this woman just walked in. She wasn't invited to the meal. She didn't sit down and eat with them. While Jesus was at the table, she began to wash his feet. Now, now picture in your mind, that's not the way we would sit at the table. Most likely, in a, a meal of this particular type, they would recline at the table with their feet at an angle away from the table, leaning on that one elbow and probably eating with the right hand, hopefully that direction. Not only that, his feet was out there where she could treat them without interfering with anything else. She wasn't invited to the meal, but she was willing to do, stand behind him, weeping. And you see the not sitting, the other, other, others were sitting at, not sitting at a table, they were reclining. The fourfold use of the word and stresses each of her actions. How fickle we are. We said, now, now, I want you to notice the, what, notice what she did. She stood behind him weeping, washed his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, anointed them with fragrant oil. And that's the way it was. Now I want to close. Our time's about up. Four simple questions. We haven't really talked about that last section there as much as I want to, but... Uh, I do want to ask, ask four simple questions. David Roper, in a commentary that he has written concerning the life of Jesus, on this particular thing, closes out that chapter with these four questions. 
And I think that, that they're not questions I've made up, they're questions of his. I want to think about them. And I want you to think about them. Am I aware of the enormity of my sin? Respectably, it is to be desired. But it's a poor substitute for holiness. It's definitely harder to reach the heart of a respectable sinner than it is to reach the heart of an ungodly individual willing to acknowledge his sin. Let each of us say, My debt, O Lord, is great. Secondly, am I aware of the wonder of being forgiven of my sins? Jesus did so many wonderful deeds. We can't even begin to compare what they are. He healed a nobleman's servant. He raised the dead. He performed many miracles. But most wonderful thing he did was to help a poor woman find peace, the peace of forgiveness. How can we think about that? You know, and also having been forgiven much, do I really love much? If the story of the cross is becoming commonplace and our hearts will never be filled with a consuming passion, let's understand that Jesus loved us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. And he continues to love us. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Let our affections be renewed day by day. Our affection for him and then number four has my love found expression the woman's immoderate gestures of appreciation would have been puzzling and embarrassing to many people who were present in Simon's house at that time some probably wondered about her sanity who is this woman that's acting in this particular way what's, what, what's the problem here I want you to understand true love does not count all of those things that we have to do. Those four questions I hope will center in your thought tonight. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you. So thankful for the compassion that you've shown. So thankful for the power that you've demonstrated to us. So thankful for the fact that you've loved us and washed away our sins and kept us pure in the sight of the Lord day by day. Father, we're so thankful. Help us always to be mindful of that and mindful of the fact that you have not only have loved us, You've had compassion on us and cared for us. In Jesus' name we pray.